We're continuing in our study of the book of Romans today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, so if you have a Bible handy, you can get to one quickly. Uh, the last part of Romans chapter 5, it's pretty technical, and so it might really help you to have a Bible open as we go through it. Uh, it's theologically technical and theologically difficult. There are a number of things in it I would love to explain to you if I understood them better. But even St. Peter admitted that some of St. Paul's writings are very difficult, and I agree with him. This passage is really dense. But we're going to look at two theological categories today. One is the doctrine of original sin, and the other is the idea of covenant theology. Original sin and covenant theology. But we're going to talk about them uh, through the lens of the turmoil that we've been experiencing as a nation with regard to race and racial strife. So we're going to think about the theological categories in light of what's going on in the nation racially. I will offer you no punditry. I don't have a better take than you do about anything that's going on, I promise. Uh, what I want to do, though, is remind you and uh, encourage you with what the Bible says that we hold in common and as a context for how we look at what's going on around us in the world and where we have our hope. And so that's what we're going to think about together. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would have mercy on us as we listen to your word. We pray that you would um, draw us to yourself and challenge and shape us and that you would fit us to be your instruments and representatives in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Do you hear people talk recently about there being two Americas? Uh, 
it's old language, really. I, when I was a little boy, people talked about two Americas and they were talking racially back after the race riots in 67. They had the, uh, the Kerner Commission that uh, President Johnson established. I don't know if they listened to the results of it very much, but it was established to try to understand the causes of the racial unrest. And so they talked about there being two Americas. Dr. King picked up on that language famously in his speech at, San, at uh, Stanford University after that. You, you heard about in 2004, if you're old enough to hear about it, in 2004, John Edwards used uh, the two Americas notion in his political presidential campaign. Um, since about the time of Edwards, though, most of the time we've heard about uh, the division in the country, it's been used to describe red versus blue, the political division, rather than a racial division. That is up until uh, the murders in Minneapolis, a murder in Minneapolis, where um, then the two Americas language began to be used about race again for us. Um, and it feels intractable when you think about the problem of race and you wonder what can be done about racism. Uh, there aren't many uh, non-sociopathic defenders of racism, uh, but it seems like it's very hard for us to make any progress, uh, to do any better with regard to race relations and our own hearts. Um, usually the way the problem is addressed is externally. It's like those bad racist people out there uh, need to change. And if we could get the baddies to behave better, then the problem could be solved. Usually, if we have better laws, we can make that happen, or maybe education would help the ignorance that drives a lot of racism, and laws and education are excellent tools. I don't mean to disparage them at all, except to say that the Bible's descriptions of our problems run even deeper than what education and laws can touch. The description says that... Um, Racism is a problem of our hearts that is innate to us ever since Adam's time. And I know that my experience with racism bears that out, that uh, I've had a lot of education about racism and I have been told by Jesus and his servants over and over again how inappropriate and ungodly racism is. And yet I'm in a lifelong struggle with racism and I don't expect to be finished with it in this life. Uh, it's just not something that I can snap my fingers and change and say, oh, I realize that's wrong, so therefore now I never want to justify myself racially or judge people racially. And so it's a deeper problem than just an external problem. And unless, this is kind of Paul's argument all through the book of Romans so far, unless you feel your brokenness deeply, then you'll always look for a less drastic solution than the Bible gives us in Jesus Christ coming to our rescue. You'll always look for something less drastic than throwing yourself on his mercy and needing him to live and die in your stead. Or to use our terms for today, unless you embrace the idea of original sin, you will never throw yourself uh, wholly on the covenant of grace. So we're gonna look at this passage under these two headings. Um, First, original sin, and then the covenant, and then covenant theology. What does original sin tell us about our struggle with racism? What does believing in original sin tell us about our struggle with racism? Well, it, it tells us that our problem is deeper than just being raised badly, or being ignorant, 
or having weak laws. All of those things are important and they contribute. We know pretty well that these things are important and they contribute, but our problems run even deeper than that. Our problems run all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the revolt of Adam, our uh, first ancestor. The revolt of Adam, which, uh, in which he usurped God's place in his life and tried to be God for himself. And ever since Adam's revolt, this passage says that sin has reigned like a tyrant in the world. And sin's henchman death has reigned alongside sin in this world, having an authority, a dominion over individuals and over us corporately and systemically. And our brokenness stems from this original breach with God. And uh, therefore we call it original sin. Paul explains it more uh, comprehensively than anywhere else in the Bible in this passage. Let me just run through a couple of these. In verse 12, he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. He said in verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In verse 21, sin reigned and reigns in death. So it's an interesting argument. It's not a familiar notion for us to think that what Adam did in the Garden of Eden has direct effect on us. We weren't there. We didn't sin when he sinned. But there's some sense in which we did. He's a representative of the human race. And everybody connected to him suffers from his sin. Since he sinned, we find ourselves born into a world as people who are not only prone to sin, polluted morally, but also we have original guilt from Adam. And if I could explain that to you better, I would. I don't understand that very well. But what he's talking about is not so much sins like individual uh, mistakes, doing the things we ought not do or leaving undone the things we uh, should have done. But he's talking about sin uh, singular, the big problem of sin, independence against God, usurping God's role, the stance that Adam took when he first rebelled against God, and the stance that all of us by nature now take with regard to God, wanting to run our own lives. So we all share a contagion genetically somehow that leads to racism is at the root of racism uh, this sin problem that we have original sin is the soil in which uh, sins particular like racism grow uh, some people are more openly symptomatic with this contagion than others but we all have the contagion of sin and that means that evil is never just external it's never just somebody else's problem something that someone else is doing uh, sin is always my problem, too. It's, it's always internal as well as external. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote many words, but the ones that get quoted the most are what he said about evil in the human heart. He said the, uh, the battle line between good and evil runs through the middle of every human heart. It's not that the baddies are out there and I'm, on, I'm one of the goodies. A uh, popular song I like says, uh, talking about the struggles politically, 
And the country says, uh, there can't be more of them than us. There can't be more of them. And for a Christian, you say, well, I, I think I am them as well as us. I, I'm not purely righteous ever. So evil runs through all of our hearts. It's never just external. And the contagion is incurable. Uh, you can't fix yourself from, from the problem of original sin. Uh, the idea that people are attracted to is that the law can fix us. If we have good laws and we keep those laws, then we can uh, overcome the problems we have with sin. The Jewish people, like Paul, thought that uh, and thought that the Torah was going to enable them to rectify what had happened through Adam if they kept the law. But Paul says over and over, it won't, it can't. The law doesn't have that power. It diagnoses, but it doesn't cure. He says in verse 20 here um, that the law came to increase the trespass or to expose the trespass. It's almost, you know, like it, it, it put our sin out like on a jeweler's black velvet so you could see more clearly the flaws in the diamonds. And the law does that to drive us to see our need of a Messiah, our need to have mercy from God through Jesus Christ. So the law does for us. So this is a dark view of human nature, admittedly. I remember I grew up in the 60s and there was a lot of talk about peace, love, and understanding. And the notion was if we throw off the yoke of tradition and religion and laws and uh, things that are very uptight, then we'll live a free and peaceful, beautiful life of love and we'll be free of prejudice and free of war. And, you know, it just hasn't really worked out that well. It hasn't worked out that well. Did you believe in original sin? I mean, the guilt of Adam's sin is a really tricky part to believe, I know, and, and it's hard to understand. But the pollution part the, part, the idea that we're bent morally, it's easier to believe. If you don't believe in original sin, my, my two-word exhortation to you would be scroll down. Because any social media comment section will put human depravity and sin on display like nothing else. It's unvarnished. Or if that doesn't work for you, go on a cross-country car trip with a two-year-old and then uh, tell me what you think. But the question, how does believing in original sin shape our approach to the problem of racism? It's a question I want to ask us. Um, one, I mentioned we don't externalize evil. So it's our problem, not just someone else's problem. We talk about racism, it's us. An example of a Christian who handled this beautifully, or a pre-Christian, is Daniel in the Old Testament in Babylon praying, confessing the sins of Israel. And he didn't say, Lord, your people sinned. He said, Lord, we sinned. And we don't know any of Daniel's sins. He gets better pressed than anybody in the whole Bible, really. But, uh, but he prayed, we have sinned. We have sinned. And so he understood that evil wasn't just external to himself. We have to do that with racism or we'll, we'll approach the solutions lightly and think that it's easy to fix. Uh, second thing, we'll use education and laws without trusting in them. Uh, it makes a lot of sense for us to use education and laws to try to help get better with regard to racism societally and individually. But we know as Christians and because of original sin that there's always the danger of self-salvation. That I'm going to try to be my own savior, fix myself, straighten myself up for God. And we can't do that. 
original sin is too big a problem for us to rectify ourselves. Uh, Johnny Mitchell said, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And she thought we could because we're golden and we're stardust. And I think there's something to the stardust thing, but we can't get ourselves back to the garden. We can't get ourselves back to the garden. So third thing is uh, that believing in original sin, we avoid despair and passivity. Uh, we don't say, well, it's such a big problem. What can you do about it? Why bother? It's always going to be this way. Uh, no, we know that Jesus has set out to fix the world, and it's a long game. It's not a quick fix. And so we don't give in to despair. We don't uh, go home after the fervor dies down. Uh, we realize that we're involved in a very long process individually and societally. And knowing what we're getting into up front because of original sin uh, prepares us for the marathon rather than the sprint. So Pascal, Blaise Pascal said, uh, the doctrine of original sin is beyond our ability to explain. But without it, we can't explain anything else. Without it, we can't explain anything else. So, uh, so that's original sin. How about covenant theology? How does covenant theology give us hope in the face of racism? In this whole passage, you see there's a big contrast between Adam and Jesus. Uh, and it says Adam is a type of the one who was to come, who's Jesus. In another letter, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. And that is that they are both uh, heads of their races. And everyone who's connected to them has their life shaped by that connection. So being connected to Adam, uh, by nature, we all have our lives shaped by his sinfulness. And being connected to Jesus, we all have our lives shaped by his gift of grace, by his granting us forgiveness and right standing before God, righteousness, justification, the words Paul uses here. And he lays this out in contrast in several verses. He starts in verse 15 and says that we've been given the gift of God's grace through Jesus. In verse 16, he says we were condemned in Adam, but we're justified in Jesus. That because Jesus has paid the penalty for our revolt against God, God doesn't hold it against us any longer and forgives us. And verse 17, he says, uh, in Adam, we were subject to death. In Jesus, we're subject to life. In verse 18, I mean, verse 19, he says, through Adam, we were made sinners. Through connection to Jesus, we're made righteous. And in verse 21, he says, sin reigns in death, but grace reigns in eternal life through Jesus. Grace reigns now. So covenant theology is based on this idea of representative heads like Adam and Jesus who stood for us and whose lives and actions have uh, a tremendous shaping consequence in our lives. An uh, example of it would be like the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament when uh, Goliath for the Philistines and David for Israel uh, stood in the stead of their whole nations and their whole armies and fought uh, with the understanding that the winner's army would win and the loser's army would lose. They were the representative heads for their respective nations and armies. And that's how Jesus and Adam function for us, is what Paul's argument is. And we call this covenant theology. 
that God has made a covenant with us because of what Jesus has done for us. And our connection to him takes us from the reign of death into the reign of life. And we now have a unhindered relationship with God through Jesus, with our sins forgiven, with his anger averted from us, with his welcome extended and his fatherly love and smile on us and a future with him that is certain. We have through what Jesus Christ did, not through what we did. So if you feel the unfairness of being culpable for Adam's sin, uh, you got to realize the unfairness of being granted Jesus's righteousness. You didn't earn either one, but if you have to have imputation to have Jesus's righteousness, I'll take it, right? So Jesus has started fixing us and fixing the world, uh, but he hasn't finished yet, right? So um, we're in relationship with him that's new. This sort of new life and new future has begun, but the old life in Adam is still going on. And so there's kind of like an overlapping Venn diagram uh, the new life has begun, but the old life is still going on. And what we're called to do as Christians is to live more and more as who we're going to be, to live into the future, to be the people that Jesus is making us, because eventually we're going to be face-to-face uh, -face with him in a world that works, and we're not going to be sinful anymore. And um, that's our destiny, and we are to begin to live into that now, to try to live that out now, put it on display now in our lives as best we can, and put it on display in the world as best we can, when we engage in the world. And a couple of implications of this for our engagement in the world with issues like racism. One is that we're not escapist. We're not people who say, well, because my real hope is in the future, is in heaven and then in the new creation, that what happens here doesn't really matter. This, you know, this world isn't gonna get much better anyway, so who cares? That's not our position because it wasn't Jesus's position. He came to fix not only our revolt against him, but all the collateral damage from our war with him. And so uh, he went around healing diseases and attending to people who are afflicted and feeding the hungry and meeting physical needs, dealing with real issues in the real world that he created and that he is redeeming. These things matter to him, so they matter to us. So when we advocate for the oppressed, we are doing what Jesus did, imitating him. He was not content with the status quo of how people treated each other and how they used power, and we're not to be content with that either. We're supposed to be agitators like he was about it. And when we do this, we're living in the future. We're anticipating the new creation. We're saying it's not always gonna be this way, and Jesus offers us substantial healing right now in a lot of these areas. Things can be a lot better because of his influence in our world. So we're not escapists. Another implication of covenant theology is that we're not despairing. Um, because even though we haven't seen much change yet, we know the change is coming. Um, if you look at the church, the church hasn't led the way very often with regard to issues of racism. Our record is embarrassing and shameful. But we believe that Jesus is able to rescue and change people who are as broken as we are. And we have hope that in our common life together as a church and as our relationship between churches and as our expression of the world uh, grows, that we can be agents of healing, that we can put on display what the mercy of Jesus does for people who no longer try to justify themselves through their race, but find their justification and identity primarily in Jesus Christ.
at. We look for the future when every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne to worship Jesus together. So um, also knowing the future keeps us from despairing uh, in the present, that we can, be, we can have endurance in the present. And uh, covenant theology keeps us from having a Messiah complex, another implication, uh, because we have a Messiah and he's not us. Right? We have one who has come to fix the world, but we know only Jesus can change what's wrong with the world with regard to systemic racism. And only Jesus can fix what's wrong with me with regard to a heart that is racist. Only Jesus can do these things. Uh, if our hope and calling was to try to get people to be a little bit nicer, uh, then we could look for other solutions. But if original sin is our problem and what people need is to be made new instead of just made a little nicer, then only Jesus can do that. And so he is our only hope. His grace alone is our only hope for change in ourselves or in other people. Um, and so that's a pretty big difference for us in thinking about what's going on in the world. But what we're called to do with the hope we have and Jesus' covenant rescue of us is to try to put the kingdom on display as best we can in our lives and families and churches and in our society where we have any place of influence to speak that we lead with the gospel, which is to lead with our own repentance instead of leading with accusation. And we are humbled by the gospel, knowing that the only thing that makes us righteous is Jesus' gift of grace. Nothing in us gives us humility to listen, which seems to be one of the big problems for us in racism is an inability or unwillingness to listen to people's stories. Um, there is in the gospel a refusal to make the other my enemy because Jesus looked at me as the other and refused to make me his enemy. While I was his enemy, Christ died for me, we read in the early part of this chapter. So we refuse as Christians to make the other our enemy. Uh, we recognize ourselves and people even in their darkest sins. And so we don't make others our enemies that way. And then. Lastly, we try to use power in the way that it's supposed to be used in Jesus' kingdom. After his example, that Jesus used his place of privilege and power, gave, gave it away in order to serve other people. He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, Paul said, but took on the form of a servant, which is also our calling after imitation of Christ to take any kind of place of privilege or power that we have and use it for the sake of other people to lay down our lives daily after the example of Jesus is our calling. So as you absorb the words and videos and media coverage of what's going on right now, and as you think about your struggles and issues with racial pride and racism long-term, have these things in your mind. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, and he's going to put an end to racism. He's going to put an end to it in me, and he's going to put an end to it in his world. Um, not just in the future only, but substantially now. I'm hopeful because of change I've seen in myself already, even though i got miles to go. I, but Jesus is able to change people like me. He's able to change problems like this. But ultimately, only he can do that. Only he can do it. So take the diagnosis of original sin seriously. Take the hope 
of covenant theology seriously, and where God gives you any chance at all, put his grace and his kingdom on display. Now let's pray together. Father, we love you because of the way that you've been merciful to us, that you have uh, not abandoned us as your enemies and not hated us as your enemies, but have loved us and come to our rescue. And we pray that you would send us into the world with your eyes and your love and the hope that we have in the power of Jesus Christ to change people through his gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.